hello and welcome to this episode of the Lives and Styles of Old Hollywood. Today's episode is a special one for me. It's on Jane Russell. And I have loved Jane Russell, I don't know, forever. <laughs> She was probably one of the first stars that I've known by name. And Gentlemen Prefer Blondes has been my favorite movie forever. And I've watched the movie in German, English, French and Italian. And I have used it to learn foreign languages. So this is a very special bond that I have with Miss Russell. And I have read her latest biography by Mrs. Rice that I will link in the show notes. It's a really great book, which gives you insight into Jane Russell's life. And I hope I will do her justice when I try to compress everything into this podcast episode. But I can also already tell you it is going to be a little longer today. So Jane Russell was one of the most glamorous stars of old Hollywood and had been known for almost a decade as the motionless picture actress. More on that later. Her life is intricately tied to Howard Hughes and her deep faith in God has navigated much of her life. She is definitely one of the most extraordinary ladies of Hollywood and definitely has an outstanding life story. So, Jane Russell was born on June 21st in 1921 in Bemidji, Minnesota in the US. Curious thing, according to biographer Christina Rice, the orphan-sighted birth name of Ernestine Jane Geraldine Russell apparently shows up nowhere in her birth or other official certificates. Geraldine is actually the name of Jane's mother and Ernestine the name of Jane's aunt. Apparently, by some sources, it was deemed more appropriate for her and more down-to-earth to have this family-bound name. But she was simply christened Jane Russell by her mother Geraldine. The reason for this name? Her mother said she thought it would look good in lights, meaning in marquee lights above theatres. So, Geraldine Russell, Jane's mom, was actually an actress herself and had had theater and oratory lessons as she had a great carrying voice. She was also interested in art and studied painting with Mary Pradish Titcom. And Titcom actually created a painting with Geraldine as subject. And this painting got quite famous when US President Woodrow Wilson purchased it, hung it in the White House and later in his private residence, where it can still be seen today. Geraldine became a stock actress and toured the US and Canada with her troupe. And on one of these stops, she married Roy Russell. But that was not a very hasty decision, at least not particularly, as they had known each other since childhood, growing up in the same town, in Grand Forks in North Dakota. And Roy and Geraldine had been high school sweethearts. But when Geraldine set out to become an actress, their ways parted and Roy was drafted for World War I. So when Geraldine's troop was near the camp that he was stationed at, Roy just showed up, confessed his undying love and asked Geraldine to marry him. And yes, she did say yes. By midnight, they were married. And the next morning, Geraldine went away with the troop to perform. In the end, though, they started life together and settled in Van Nuys in the San Fernando Valley in California. They would build a house there, which they called La Posada, This was the home to Geraldine and Roy, as well as their five kids, Jane, the oldest, along with four younger brothers. The family was rather well off, with the father being general manager of a company. They even had horses for the kids. 
and they were a close family bunch. Jane was more a tomboy than a girly girl and was the one managing her brothers, playing rough with them and standing her ground in a male-dominated household. But when Jane was 16, her father died from a stroke during his convalescence after an operation. Life changed and it got a bit less comfortable. The kids, and especially Jane as the oldest, had to do more chores and had a lot more responsibility. All in all, her upbringing equipped Jane to be confident and self-assured and to be able to talk to everybody and anybody, to socialize easily and have no reservations against anybody, male or female. When Jane graduated from high school, she was not sure what to do. Her boyfriend, Robert Waterfield, did not want to start a family yet and she wanted to contribute to the household. Her mother once an actress, and seeing the beauty in her daughter urged her to go into acting and do some workshops at the Reinhardt Theatre. But Jane was bored of it and rather found some other work as a salesperson in shops and decided on studying design. But one day, when visiting one of her close girlfriends at Maria Uspenskaya School of Dramatic Arts, she was bitten by the acting bug and enrolled in her course. But even after the course, Jane had a hard time breaking into the movies. She couldn't get a role because she had no representation and she couldn't get any representation because she didn't have any acting credits. It was a lucky coincidence that Jane met Tom Kelly, an LA-based photographer who would later become world-renowned for shooting Marilyn Monroe for the first ever Playboy. Kelly photographed Jane for various advertising campaigns and taught her everything a model needed to know in order to look great in photographs, a skill that would later come in handy in Jane's career. Tom Kelly liked Jane and even arranged a screen test for her at 20th Century Fox. But they told Tom that Jane simply was not photogenic and therefore couldn't get a contract, which is ridiculous as she looked stunning in photographs. So, the outlaw was Jane Russell's first job as an actress that would take 10 years to finally make it to the big screen. And it is one of the best marketing campaigns to have ever been implemented. The one behind this eccentric multimillionaire Howard Hughes, who had entered the world of Hollywood roughly a decade before, launching such gems like Hell's Angels and Scarface. He got a script written for a movie about one legend of Billy the Kid and engaged the services of versatile director Howard Hawks to direct a movie. He also cast veteran actors Walter Houston and Thomas Mitchell for the movie. But Hughes wanted unknowns for the roles of Billy the Kid and his love interest, Rio. And therefore, a search similar to the search for Scarlet for Gone with the Wind was started. And it was through agent Levis Green that Jane Russell made it into the search. Green saw one of her portraits at Tom Kelly's studio, stole it and brought it to Howard Hughes and Howard Hawks. Both wanted to see Jane for a screen test. And in the end, Jane got the role as Rio and Jack Putel was cast as Billy the Kid. Apparently, Howard Hughes was very big on big breasts and Jane Russell was very well equipped in this department. So she got the role. She was in business. Side note. All in all, Jane Russell would sign three deals with Howard Hughes. The first was seven years. The second would be four years with way more money. And then she would sign a 20-year deal in which she only had to star in six movies within a five-year period and receive monthly income for 20 years. So that was a great deal. So Howard Hughes was basically Jane Russell's boss during her whole career in Hollywood. So, shooting the outlaw. 
Jane Russell's first role in Hollywood was painful in many ways. Jane Russell had mainly signed on because she felt at total ease with Howard Hawks. And when shooting commenced on location in Arizona, everything was fine. But that soon changed when Howard Hawks resigned. Howard Hughes made himself director. But as he was not very good with people and not very good at directing people, the film and the acting is not as good as it could have been. But the overarching idea, the technicalities, the filming... The Outlaw is quite a view, and it is still available to watch on YouTube if you're interested. One of the most important things for Howard Hughes, Jane Russell and her inviolable womanly physique. In short, he liked her breasts, and he was obsessed with them. And one of the curious things about Hughes' obsession with Jane's bosom during The Outlaw was that he constructed a seamless bra for Russell to wear under her blouse, to make it seem as if her body was defying gravity. In the end, Jane Russell did not wear it, but she did not tell Howard Hughes so. And instead, she donned her own bra and padded it so the seams could not be seen. He apparently never knew the difference. Howard Hughes was sure that a success of The Outlaw was not relying on the script or the director or the other actors, but solely on Jane. So he engaged the wits of Russell Birdwell, the PR genius behind the search for Scarlet that made the whole country go gone with the wind crazy and had ensured the movie to be a full success. Hughes and Birdwell got the marketing machine rolling once Jane Russell had been signed to The Outlaw. They knew that Jane Russell was exceptional, so a whole slew of photographers were flown to Arizona to photograph naive Jane Russell. What they wanted? Shots of her impressive cleavage. And they got these shots. Jane was incredibly embarrassed about them. But these were the photos that made her officially enter the world of Hollywood. Jane was promoted big time. She was photographed also at La Posada, at the gold mine, at a sorority party. Wherever something was happening, Jane was sent there and photographed. George Burrell, the photographer who would later be credited to have created the most mesmerizing portrait photographs of all of old Hollywood, photographed Jane Russell as well. They had two shootings together. At the first, he photographed Jane on a fur carpet and in a simple satin dress and in a frilly dress, very glamorous, very Hollywood. But at the second shooting, he shot the legendary Haystack pictures, which would create an outrage with Hollywood senses. In the photographs, Jane's shirt has the appearance of being torn and her skirt is hoisted halfway up her thigh. Thus clad, Jane lies seductively in the hay. Not only the moralists of Hollywood were mortified, but so was Jane. Coming from a very God-abiding household, being promoted simply for being a sexy woman made her uncomfortable. But she was a clever girl, understanding that this was the way she could become a household name in Hollywood. Howard Hawks' first advice to her had been to say no whenever she felt a line had been crossed. That was something that empowered her to make the campaign her own and decide the boundaries. The chain Russell PR campaign, as well as the media, used several euphemisms for her physique. Voluptuous, bosomy, curvy, well-rounded, ample, extraordinarily physically endowed. She was the sensational Cinderella, the sultry Cinderella, perfect 36, hell's new angel and dark-haired Harlow. 
It was almost a year of consecutive promotion, but the movie had not been released. And then Pearl Harbor happened. The marketing machine went into overdrive and Jane was documented in whatever war-related activity she was engaged in. Jane Russell said about the endless photographing that it was actually easy compared to the nightmare of filming the outlaw, as she had learned from Tom Kelly how to pose. She knew exactly what she was doing. During the promotional campaign of 1941, Jane Russell moved in with actress Carol Gallagher, who had actually dated Howard Hughes earlier. Jane was now independent in her own house, free and well paid. But not only the marketing campaign was responsible for delaying the release of the outlaw, also the Hayes Code and the Hayes Office did. They demanded many recuts, which Hughes went to appeal. He actually printed big size posters of the actresses in demand back then and proved to the jury that Jane Russell was as covered or uncovered as much as the others, including Rita Hayworth, Betty Crable, Irene Dunn, Loretta Young and Claudette Colbert. This resulted in less cuts demanded and a preliminary PCA seal of approval, if the changes were seen through. But even then, the movie was not released. A premiere in London was cancelled due to the war proceedings. A Chicago premiere was cancelled. Instead, Hughes wanted to have now a roadshow of the outlaw with a live sketch beforehand with Jane Russell and Jack Butel. So, roadshow was postponed as well to try out the live sketch in theaters, which was a bit hard, as the sketch was not preceding the movie it was supposed to introduce. Nevertheless, the sketch made its debut in Tucson, Arizona, with not much critical acclaim. Hughes got more and more occupied with wartime contracts and with its aircraft business, and did not have the time to read or the sketch, so again, the premiere was postponed. And finally, two years after finalizing the movie, the outlaw would premiere in San Francisco after personal begging by San Francisco's mayor. When the movie was finally scheduled, Birdwell heightened local marketing in San Francisco and put up gigantic posters advertising the movie with George Harrell's sultry haystack photographs all across town. Within the seven-week run, approximately 46,000 people saw the movie. After the soft release and some PCA's issues dealt with, Hughes could have had the outlet released nationwide. But he didn't. Instead, he focused on his aircraft business and let the public believe that the PCA and the state censorship boards were responsible for the delay. This, of course, made people all around America even more eager to finally see the movie if the censors had so much trouble with it. In 1946, a full five years after finishing the movie, the release was planned again. And this time, accompanied with an ad campaign boasting copy like the lady known as Ryu and the man she made notorious, or promoting Jane Russell as tall, terrific and trouble, as well as mean, moody, magnificent. Another very successful advertisement stroke of genius was getting illustration artist Zoe Mozart on board. She immortalized the infamous haystack pictures in an even sultrier oil painting. The painting was put in an ad with its now famous line, How would you like to tussle with Russell? Of course, the censors were back on the case. Hughes gave in sometimes and sometimes he did not. He battled. The outlaw had a limited release in 1948 and a national rollout in 1950. Ten years 
after filming had been wrapped. So for those 10 years, Jane Russell had been known as the motionless picture actress. But apart from The Outlaw, Jane starred in other movies. Howard Hughes loaned her to producer Hans Stromberg for Young Widow, which was not a great movie. The Pale Face in 1948, opposite Bob Hope, as well as The Son of Pale Face, were incredible hits and showed Jane Russell's great comedic timing. Montana Bell was filmed in 1949, but only released three years later. It's Only Money, co-starring Frank Sinatra and Croucho Marx, was also shelved for two years, mostly because Hughes was not happy about Sinatra's marriage to Ava Gardner, on whom Hughes had always had a crush. Also in 1949, filming on His Kind of Woman started, with Jane Russell co-starring Robert Mitchum. Mitchum had just served a 50-day jail sentence for marijuana possession, and while other studios would turn away because of the scandal, Howard Hughes saw big publicity potential in Mitchum and hired him for the role. His kind of woman would be another Howard Hughes disaster in the sense that after shooting wrapped, there was still a lot of work to be done. At least, that's how Hughes saw it. He ordered reshoots, changed the ending, the climax and the personality of some of the characters. The reshoot would take another year or so, during which Jane Russell and Robert Mitchum would already need to start filming their next movie, Macau. His kind of woman underwhelmed the audiences, but it proved that Jane Russell could bring the A-list clamor to the screen. Macau was again chaotic, with Joseph von Sternberg directing. His autocratic style did not work with Mitchum and Russell. Nevertheless, he finished the film, but again, reshoots were ordered and audiences would only be able to see it in 1952. Another movie released in 1952 would be the Las Vegas story opposite Victor Mature. Two more movies followed, a cameo in Road to Bali and Double Dynamite, both released in 1951. When Double Dynamite hit the theatres, The Las Vegas Story, Macau, Son of Paleface and Montana Bell were also running simultaneously. So in short, Russell, heavily publicized from the second half of 1940 onwards, would have only three movies in the cinemas during the 1940s. Whereas in the 50s, when all movies were basically released at the same time, she had seven movies released within a time period of less than two years. So the 1950s were actually the busiest decade for Russell. In 1952, filming for Gentlemen Prefer Plants started, co-starring Jane Russell and Marilyn Monroe. At that time, Marilyn was still a rather unknown and even had to fight to get her own dressing room, whilst Jane Russell got the queen treatment. Those two very opposite characters had one commonality. Neither of them was able to dance. Their experience so far had only been minor movements, so that was the main part of preparation for these two, and choreography was changed for them. In the beginning, they were supposed to make the same exact movements, but as they had very different body compositions and movements, it did not look good. So in the end, Marilyn would be assigned to do the more feminine, seductive moves, while Jane did the more male, outdoorsy, sporty moves. Jane and Marilyn Monroe really liked each other and got along very well. Jane sensed that Marilyn was fighting some demons and was having trouble, and she invited her to a session of a Hollywood Christian group. Marilyn would later say about this, 
Jane tried to convert me to her religion and I tried to interest her in Freud. Unfortunately, the friendship fizzled out after filming. Jane loved working on this movie and she recalls it as her strongest performance as it was the role that was closest to her natural self, very grounded with good common sense and a feeling of what is important in life. On top of that, she was allowed to show her comedian talent, her singing chops and her glamorous figure in the most exquisite Travilla-designed dresses. The funniest thing about the movie, at least I think so, Director Howard Hawks would later laugh about those two actresses being sex bombs. I quote his words. Nobody would ever take Marilyn out. Nobody paid attention to her. She sat with no clothes on the set and everybody just walked right by her. And Shane Russell had never known anything but one man. She was like an old shoe, you know. I never thought of either of them as having any sex. Well... We see it differently. The film was a smash hit, of course, and until today it is a much-loved classic. The following movies, The French Line and Underwater, kind of were underwhelming, although memorable. The French Line boasts some great costumes and a wonderful song sequence with Jane Russell. Underwater, on the other hand, was mostly filmed underwater, with scuba gear. The publicity surrounding both, though, was magnificent. For the French line, they even got the Archbishop of St. Louis to forbid seeing the movie to all Catholics, which of course raked up the curiosity. Underwater, on the other hand, had its premiere underwater, with guests also using scuba gear. Then there are the so-called Ross Field years. Jane and husband Robert Waterfield would found Ross Field together, their own production company. When Waterfield resigned in 1952 from playing for the Rams, he wanted to turn his attention to the movie industry, which he had some kind of knowledge of, both from his wife as well as some appearances he himself had had on the screen. They signed a six-picture deal with United Artists with a clause that Jane had to star in three of them, and she did. Foxfire, Gentleman Mary Prinettes, and The Fuzzy Pink Nightgown. The last one being one of Jane Russell's personal favorites, as the character was rather close to herself. The deal, though, was cut short as none of the movies made money and United Artists was not interested in waiting for the remaining ones. Robert and Jane were definitely not unhappy and dissolved the company in 1960. As Jane Russell had a deal with Howard Hughes at the same time, she had to juggle those roles as well, the first of which was The Tall Men opposite Clark Gable, a real highlight in Jane Russell's filmography. Strong script, great director, impressive score, on-point actors. The next movie was Hot Plot, which flopped because of excessive rewrites and location changes that made the story uncompelling on several levels. And then there is The Revolt of Mamie Stover, opposite Richard Egan, which was penned by the critics. After a two-year absence from pictures, Jane Russell returned first in a co-starring movie and then again in leading parts in such films as Fate is the Hunter, Johnny Reno, Wacko, The Honorable Frauds and The Born Losers. In between her busy film schedule in the 1950s, Jane Russell had made many appearances on the small screen on TV. For example, on What's My Line, Person to Person and This Is Your Life. She also appeared in an episode of the Daisy Loop Playhouse, in an episode of Death Valley Days and the Red Skeleton Hour. 
In the early 1980s, she would appear in the television series The Yellow Rose opposite Sam Elliott, Sybil Shepherd, and Chuck Connors. Her last appearance would be in the series Hunter. Apart from acting, Jane loved singing. And in 1946, she suggested to Howard Hughes that she could sing instead of performing a live sketch before the screening of The Outlaw. Jane was actually quite good and audiences celebrated her. The reviews weren't as favorable, but that didn't stop Jane. She would go on to appear on radio and would be booked for live performances not related to The Outlaw. While her first contract with Hughes was seven years, the next one was only four years with a significant increase in pay and with only 40 weeks of work per year. Because she wanted to be able to A, have time off to get her 10 hours of sleep in and B, do singing and live performances. She would go on to record and release an album with Columbia Records in 1948 while waiting for one of her pictures to be released. She did stage work at the Oriental Theatre in Chicago, as well as at the Princess Theatre in London. Her Christian singing group with fellow actresses Connie Hines, Della Russell and Beryl Davis would go on to record several albums and Jane Russell did release some solo albums on top of it. In 1957, she was unexpectedly invited to a four-week engagement at the Sands Hotel in Las Vegas, as Dean Martin had to drop out at the last minute. It was a 40-minute set that spoofed her career in Hollywood. Clad in slinky gowns, 36-year-old Jane Russell was a full success. She followed it up with an engagement at a Latin Quarter nightclub in New York. From then onwards, Jane Russell would continue to do nightclub engagements for the remainder of her life. In 1959, Jane Russell faced one of her biggest fears, live acting on stage. Because as a film actress, she was trained to learn lines quickly and forget them just as quickly again. Remembering a play was a whole other thing. But she did so in the play Chanus that would open in a theatre in a round. Her first time was probably not the best, but it received rather good reviews. In 1966, she appeared in Toronto in a stage production of Pal Joey and in Catch Me If You Can the same year in Chicago. She would also appear in a musical High Button Shoes in Daytona, Ohio, and again in Catch Me If You Can in New Jersey. But the final frontier for her was Broadway. And it was the play Company that finally had a part available that Jane Russell wanted to do. But she did not enjoy the long run. She liked short-time engagements better because she got bored by the daily routine. When it comes to relationships, it is important to know that Jane Russell always wanted to get married. Even from an early age onwards, she once said that she was born married. It was all I waited for. Her first husband was Robert Waterfield. Jane Russell and Robert Waterfield met at high school when Jane was only 14 years old. Jane was immediately taken by the handsome senior. Robert was described as serious, brooding and distrustful of unfamiliar people. Jane nicknamed him Old Stoneface. They actually only started dating when Jane herself was a senior and Robert was in college. And this started a relationship that would last almost 30 years. But it wasn't easy. Actually, Jane had to learn how to communicate and be with Robert, who never wanted to talk and wasn't able to communicate feelings. 
they made love for the first time on Shane's 18th birthday. When Shane was getting more and more coverage and her career was gaining speed, their relationship got more and more strained as Robert did not like the movie industry and did not like Shane to be a part of it. Before Shane Russell turned 21 years old, she got pregnant. On the cusp of a Hollywood career with a boyfriend who did not like her job and a marketing campaign with millions of dollars for the outlaw and during a time that unmarried good girls did not become pregnant. Jane Russell did not see any other way out than getting an abortion. But options were limited and unsafe. So Jane went to a doctor known to perform these procedures and he did without anesthesia, twice, because it was not successful the first time. And it was pure hell for Russell, who got severely ill the second time with high fever, and she had to be rushed to the hospital and operated on. She would never be able to get pregnant again because of the physical damage done by the illegal procedure. And this led Jane to rethink her life. She broke off the engagement to emotionally unavailable Waterfield to officially date John Payne, whom she had occasionally dated during her time with Waterfield. She was actually not sure which baby it has been. At least that is what she wrote in her autobiography. Nevertheless, Jane Russell would not be able to free herself from the fascination she had for Robert Waterfield and eloped with him in 1943 to Las Vegas, Nevada and got married at 22 years. The marriage was a very rocky one with two strong characters that were quite different. As they say, they were not able to be together nor to stay apart. The almost three decades together included also physical abuse of Jane, with one incident in Las Vegas when Robert would punch her so often in the face that she had a black eye and was swollen for days. She would affirm that this was a singular event, but Jan Lowell, who helped her ghostwrite her first autobiography, said, Honey, he beat the bejesus out of her. Apparently this is a football thing. She used to talk to the other football wives. They were all battered women. He beat her. She was a battered wife. Jane and Robert adopted three kids during the marriage, Tracy, Thomas and Buck. The strained marriage went into serious decline during the filming of The Fuzzy Pink Nightgown in 1957 when 36-year-old Jane cheated on her husband and was confronted about it by Robert. Although Robert swore on the Bible to have never cheated on her, this was a lie. He had done so, and Jane filed for divorce in 1967. The process would take about 18 months. Tracy and Thomas would stay with Jane, and Buck, who adored his dad, stayed with him instead. Then there was John Payne. John Payne was quite the opposite of Robert Waterfield. He was able to communicate feelings. He was a thinker, reader and writer. And he showered Jane with attention and tenderness. And she dated him during her relationship with Robert Waterfield and after she broke up with him. And they even discussed marriage. But as I said before, she couldn't free herself from Robert Waterfield and married him instead. And then there's Robert Mitchum. Robert Mitchum and Jane Russell got to know each other during the filming of His Kind of Woman in Macau, which basically started filming at the time of the reshoots for His Kind of Woman. They got along very well and developed a lifelong friendship. She never admitted to have dated him, nor to have had an affair with him, but in interviews after his death, she would say something that could be interpreted to the contrary. For example, to the question, what did you love about working with him? Jane Russell answered, I loved Robert Mitchum. And when asked whether Robert Mitchum or later co-star Richard Egan was a better kisser, she would answer, 
I never kissed Richard Egan except in the picture. So a lot of people are assuming that Mitchum is the man that she cheated on Robert Waterfield with and who would be the beginning of the end of their marriage. Another relationship that Jane Russell was involved in was Dan Darby. Jane and Dan, a businessman, met through mutual friends and developed a bond quickly. In the beginning of 1962, they started an affair. And this very affair led Jane to ask for a divorce from Robert Waterfield. After separating from Waterfield, though, she found out that Dan was meeting other women at the same time and ended the relationship. And then came Roger Barrett. Whilst the divorce of Jane and Robert was ongoing, Jane starred opposite Tony Dow at the Chicago Mill Run Playhouse. Co-starring was Roger Barrett. Roger and Jane fell in love immediately. Two months after meeting, they decided to get married. And they were married in August 1968. But on November 18, the same year, Roger Barrett suffered a heart attack from a blood clot and was dead at age 47. Jane was devastated. She would live on a boat for a while, suffered from a deep, deep depression and turned to alcohol, something she had done for most of her life. And then came husband number three. In 1973, Jane Russell moved to Santa Barbara because she wanted some change of scenery, where she met Texas native John Peoples. He was a retired Air Force colonel and now involved in real estate investments near Santa Maria. They got married in 1974 and stayed together until people's death in 1999. They would live for the most part together in Sedona, Arizona. After his death, Jane would move to Santa Maria and become friends with Katy Perry's mother, Mary Hudson. Jane Russell died at home in Santa Maria in 1981 at the ripe age of 89. So one of the most important things in Jane Russell's life apart from her movie career, was her faith. Jane's mother, Geraldine Russell, had always had a close relationship with God. It intensified when Geraldine lost her firstborn son in his first year. From then on, she became loyal to God and tried to instill in her kids a deep faith, an unwavering belief in God. Jane grew up with a mother, holding Bible studies for her family and then with friends and neighbors, inviting anybody who wanted to participate. Geraldine and her family were non-denominational, neither Catholic nor Presbyterian. Geraldine believed in God and his goodness and in the Bible, and she was able to instill this in her kids and those around her. There were only about three years in Jane's life during her teenage years that she was not practicing her faith. Apart from that, she was a very devoted Christian, set up Christian groups in the valley and in Hollywood, and she prayed often. She would never push her faith on anyone, though, according to those who knew her. She would be inviting and talk about it whenever someone expressed interest, but never forceful. The most amazing thing about Jane, I think, is that she was able to be deeply faithful, yet totally fine with her image of a sex bomb. She was able to reconcile these opposites. One of the things that came out of it was a Christian-themed singing career with fellow actresses Connie Haynes, Della Russell and Beryl Davis. Della would later drop out and be replaced by Rhonda Fleming. And as I said before, they were quite successful. They recorded several albums and they booked nightclub acts. And if you have Spotify or Amazon Prime Music, 
you can find Jane Russell's albums, and there are a lot of it, and also those where she does Do Lord and other Christian-themed songs with her fellow actresses turned singers. So have a listen. They're really good. They're very gospely, if that is a word. So yeah, have a listen. It is really worth your time. One thing about Jane Russell that I want to point out is that she was very loyal and full of integrity. She would never reveal the names of people that crossed her path and showed up less than favorable. She would never insult, mock or give the press any chance to attack people. For example, before she had started out in the movies, a gentleman that Jane would only refer to as Mr. X would make advances at her and tell her that he would get her into the movies if only she slept with him. She reportedly just laughed and left the room. She never revealed his identity. The other incident would be the man that she cheated with on her first husband. She would never reveal his identity either. And there's only interpretation and guessing that it could have been Robert Mitchum. She also would not reveal the name of the father of her unborn baby. It could have been Robert Waterfield or John Payne. Additionally, Jane Russell was strictly loyal to Howard Hughes, her boss for almost 30 years. The press always wanted to get some gossip about the eccentric millionaire out of her. But her reaction was, he's gone a long way out of his way to avoid publicity, so I'm not about to be the one to give it to him. She was always loyal to him, something he valued very much. That's why they got along so well for such a long time. Another absolutely touching incident happened during one of her last movies. The director was on set despite being in excruciating pain from appendicitis. Jane saw it, said she wouldn't work for stupid directors and left. But before she actually left, she turned and said, when you feel better, I will work for free. And that's the kind of woman she was. She was full of integrity. She wanted everybody to be okay. And she didn't care about the money and the time. She was living her faith in the best way possible, without a church or an institution in the back, just her conscience and God. And that's what I really respect about her. Because of her botched abortion, Jane Russell was unable to have children of her own. But as she wanted to have a big family, she turned to adoption. Her first child, Tracy, was of American origin and was adopted at a few months of age. But Jane also wanted to adopt a boy who was a little bit older than Tracy. And she voiced this wish very openly in the media. And when Jane was in Europe for a gala charity event, a lady approached her with the most angelic boy named Thomas and pleaded Jane to take him, as he would have a better life with her than with his birth mother, with her. Jane and her team were able to get all the papers to get Thomas out of the UK and headed back to the US. And that's when trouble began. The media would make a scandal out of it and the coverage got so outrageous that officials on both sides of the Atlantic were no longer able to turn a blind eye. The US involved first the FBI and J. Edgar Hoover, but he passed it on to the Immigration and Naturalization Service, INS. All charges were dropped on the US side. In the UK, on the other side, the birth parents of Thomas were accused and charged with unlawfully permitting the care and possession of the infant to be transferred. Jane Russell paid for the lawyer for the parents to get cleared of all charges. In the end, Jane and husband Robert Waterfield were able to adopt Thomas. But the whole ordeal made Jane question why it was so difficult to adopt the child from another country. So she founded WAVE to make it easier for kids without families to find families. They should have the possibility to be part of a family in another country. WAVE would later become the fundraising part of the INS and approximately 
40,000 children would find a home through the organization. It was the one thing that Jane Russell was most proud of, more than of her glamorous movie career. Another fun fact about Jane Russell is that she loved design. She was even close to enrolling in design school, but had a change of heart and enrolled in Maria Uspenskaya School of Dramatic Arts instead when she was young. She also helped design her own house in the clouds, which was a mid-century modern residence in Sherman Oaks. Later on, she designed Towers West, which is a luxurious eight-year apartment building that she designed. Her brother Tom would be the contractor on the building and a friend of his son through the elevations. And in 1988, Jane Russell launched a clothing line of loungewear and sleepwear for middle-income women of fuller size. It included nightgowns, caftans and pajamas. And on that note, Jane Russell would also become the spokesperson of Playtex Brass in 1973. When it comes to Jane Russell's style, she was style-wise actually quite a late plumer. As she was growing up with four brothers on a ranch, she wore predominantly practical clothing and was not accustomed to wearing glamorous dresses when she first entered the film industry. That started to change right away when signing with Howard Hughes. The night he celebrated with Jane Russell in the fancy nightclub Mukambo, she realized she had nothing to wear and had to buy a new dress for a lot of money. Afterwards, Hughes sent her to Slim Keith, the future wife of Howard Hawks, who also was the one suggesting Lauren Bacall for To Have and Have Not. And Slim Keith got Jane dressed, with Howard Hughes footing the bill. And Jane Russell was also incredibly lucky to be under contract to Howard Hughes personally, not as an actress amongst many at a large studio like MGM. So Jane Russell was not forced to starve herself, especially as Howard Hughes loved her breasts. And she was not forced to shave eyebrows or change anything about herself. Hughes let Jane be her beautiful self. Jane Russell's glamour style actually evolved throughout her film career. Her first glamour movie was His Kind of Woman and it established her glamorous body and style with figure-hugging costumes by Howard Greer. RKO costume designer Michael Wolfe would be responsible for Jane Russell's costume in the movie Macau, which included her famous gold evening gown made of metal mesh with an estimated weight of 21 pounds. And this was actually the only high-neck costume that Howard Hughes allowed Jane Russell to wear. Actually, during the filming of the film, Howard Hughes sent a memo to Wolf that would detail problems with the bosom area of Russell's dress. It was a long text that in essence said, make those breasts look more natural and more beautiful and let some form of a nipple show through the fabric. Hughes was obsessed. But that is what happened and it was a beautiful wardrobe that let Shane Russell's beauty shine. Jane also made headlines for her style in 1951, when being invited to a gala charity event benefiting the Cinema Trade Benevolent Fund and being presented to the Queen in the process. One reporter wrote, The most brilliant gown among the film actresses who were presented tonight was worn by Jane Russell. It was a heavy scarlet off-the-shoulder crinoline gown etched with mink. She also wore a velvet hood and carried a muff of mink. 
William Trevilla was the one who designed the tresses for Russell for the movie Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, and he was at his wit's end to come up with the right wardrobe that would emphasize each actress's fortes, get by the production court administration, and pull the movie together visually as it was shot in Technicolor. Jack Cole said about the first disastrous costume test, Next to Monroe, Chain looked like a very good-looking, sexy Iceman. But an Iceman. Because Chain was taller and more muscular than Marilyn and needed a whole new, very different wardrobe. And that's when Chain sat down with Travilla and let him in on all the wisdom that she had acquired of what she was able to pull off and what not. And the new costumes were a hit. Another style incident that involved Chain Russell was when Wolf was requested by Hughes to design a bikini for Chain's role in the French line. That is when trouble ensued because bikinis were only worn by a very particular kind of woman and Chain Russell would not wear it. Instead, Wolf would design a one-piece with cutouts that would give the illusion of a toothpaste. And it is absolutely legendary and much sexier than an obvious two-piece would have been. So in short, Shane Russell was full of contradictions. She was a sex symbol that was studying the Bible and had unwavering faith in God. She was one of the most publicized and best-known actresses of her time, but most of her movies failed, either critically or commercially. For 10 years, she had the biggest marketing campaign in the US without the picture showing. She was different. Different than anybody else because of her special contract with Howard Hughes. She was not part of the studio system. She was absolutely loyal to Hughes and had a singular position in Hollywood as I see it. This had pros and cons. She was marketed as the busty sex symbol that Howard Hughes was obsessed with and was left to his whims when it came to the movies that she was allowed to do. But on the other hand, she was also allowed to be herself, to have freedom of expression, both literally as well as in her other creative endeavors. She was allowed to talk about her faith. She was allowed to talk about anything that she wanted to talk about. And she was allowed to have her singing, to have her stage performances that a lot of other actresses would have been forbidden to do. So, Jane Russell's style and personality, as well as her films, will forever live on. And there's one last remark. So there is a quote out there by Jane Russell, which reads, These days I am a teetotal, mean-spirited, right-wing, narrow-minded, conservative Christian bigot, but not a racist. And honestly, I totally side with the CEO of WAVE who said about this quote that he is quite sure that it was followed by a wink by Jane Russell. Because she is anything but narrow-minded and mean-spirited. And I hope you came to that conclusion as well during this episode. She was an extraordinary woman with a big, big heart, who cared about everybody around her, who wanted to know everybody and who wanted to make everybody feel good. So I think this remark or this quote by Jane Russell was totally meant ironically. And I hope that people know it now. Now it comes to the lessons that I learned from Jane Russell. First, be yourself. You are wonderful the way you are. Whether you are tall or small, big busted or flat chested, sporty or brainy, blonde or brunette, let your natural self shine always. I mean, we have Marilyn Monroe 
and Jane Russell in one movie. They're quite different, but they're both stunning and extraordinary because they are themselves. So you have to be yourself. Second, never let others treat you bad. Leave when you're not valued, full stop. It is your responsibility to say no, to have boundaries, to create the environment that you love and can thrive in, both literally and emotionally. Third, loyalty always pays off. Keep your word and don't let whims decide your next move. Know the people that will keep their word as well and stick up for each other. Be full of integrity and always be honest. It's a give and take. So if you do those things, the people that you engage with will also reflect that back to you. Fourth, have faith. And it doesn't matter on what, be it God, the universe, angels or spirits. To have something you can believe in, something that gives you hope and confidence in the now and in the future is just valuable. So have faith, be spiritual, find your way. What is it that you can have confidence in and faith in in your everyday life? And last thing, know your strengths and play them. Whether your strengths are physical or are any skill that you possess, let them shine. Let your strengths shine. Play your strengths because you are you. You are exceptional and extraordinary. And if there's something you have, do or know, use it. So, as I said, this is a lengthy one, but I loved the biography of Jane Russell. And I think she had an extraordinary life. And she was one of the most beautiful women that I've ever set my eyes on. And even at 89, she was still stunning. I hope you enjoyed her and her story just as much as I did. And yes, I hope I can talk to you again next week. And I hope you're having a wonderful time till then. Bye.